are so excited today that Anna Zemanski is here taking a break from Reuters and Slate Money to come and talk to us instead. Well, we're, you. Sorry. <laughs> no, God. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's a thrill because you know more about what is going on in the investor universe than pretty much anybody. And it's especially exciting because you have been the one to write the stories that really blew the lid off the Argentine Pac-Man and redesignation drama. So, um, but we are not going to ask you about those today. <laughs> Nor are we going to use blow the lid off as a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do want to ask you about certain big picture developments that relate to Argentina. And then perhaps in the second half, go into a discussion of a country that you know well and have discussed on uh, Slate Money and in your Reuters pieces, but we want to even get deeper and geekier in terms of talking about what's going on there, and that's uh, Lebanon. But to start with, I'm curious as to your take on my uh, very casual observation that the world of investors has changed since the halcyon days of Elliot and Aurelius and litigation against Peru and Christina Kirchner and massive recoveries for these pariah funds. Instead, my perception, again, from the margins is that there's a whole new set of players who are running things right now. And they are not necessarily the scorched earth litigation types. Instead, they're the kind of uh, real money investors, I'm not sure if that's the right word, who previously might have sold their bonds when they went into sea or below territory. But the, the those guys and gals are exercising their muscle in the modern restructurings. This may be totally wrong, but I'd I'd love to know about your perception of the investor world uh, since you know it so well. Yeah, well, first, thanks again for that uh, very kind introduction. Your perception is accurate. It's it's very accurate. So, you know, since the olden days of the early 2000s, emerging market debt has really, really grown as an asset class massively. So this, this isn't just an area where you only have specialized funds. This is an area where basically everyone is playing in now. At the same time, overall investing has changed. You've had the growth of bond mutual funds, the growth of bond ETFs, indexing, passive investing, and a lot of consolidation of money. So you have now these enormous asset managers like BlackRock with over you know, $7 trillion. You have someone like Fidelity, which is, has all of these you know, bond mutual funds that are there at, at, at Fidelity. Thus, you have these large players, these large kind of institutional real money players who are involved in a lot, are going to, going to be involved in almost any of these larger structurings because just by definition, they're going to have very, very large positions. And do you think, so to, to follow up on that, what is the, um, 
the end game here, or at least um, as I understand, we are looking at a type of investor who is not just maybe in these markets to a degree that wasn't formerly true, but is wants to have its hands on the wheel in restructuring talks. And that's something that it seems like was not the primary objective of sort of the prior generation of distressed debt funds, which wanted the restructuring to go forward so that they could do the litigation thing. And in the Argentina and Ecuador context, we of course wound up with a deal. Uh, Everybody sort of blinked enough to um, reach some kind of deal towards the end. What do you think the, the future holds when that doesn't happen? Do we see these, um, you know, the Black Rocks and, and whoever else, are they now the new litigants or are we going to revert back to the world as we knew it where they're going to exit their positions to some extent or at least allow the, you know, the Elliots of the world to kind of have the laboring or when it comes to actually enforcing claims? So I definitely think, to answer one of your last questions, we are not going to be going back to the old world because a lot of these funds, I mean, they do sometimes quite literally can't exit their positions. So I think that when you're talking about some of these larger funds that are going to have enormous positions, by definition, they are going to have to play a role. And they are going to, they are going to basically be a roadblock for any negotiation at all. Or, I'm sorry, let me restate that. So these very, very large funds are going to, by definition, have to play a very large role in any type of restructuring negotiation. And they're going to have different incentives than a lot of the smaller funds might have. Often, they probably will have gotten into bonds at potentially higher prices. They may have bought in at par. Thus, they're going to want higher recovery values. And because they are so large and they have so much heft and they know that nothing is getting done if they don't agree they really are going to control a lot of these talks moving forward. And this is definitely something we saw in Argentina and Ecuador. Also, frankly, we saw it in the province of Buenos Aires, where you had some of these smaller funds that were going to allow PBA Mm -hmm. to not make this $250 million payment. And Fidelity was like, no, I know you can pay. You're going to pay. And so PBA was like, I guess we're going to pay. This just, um, sorry to interrupt you, but this, this is us. A, very interesting, and B, potentially worrying in that we've talked before about the failure of collective action clauses to work in Argentina and Ecuador in the way in which they were supposed to. And I I think perhaps if Lebanon had had a restructuring, we would have seen that too. And part of the reason for that seems to be these big funds find it so easy to have blocking positions. And almost seems like they have more power now because the thresholds are so well-defined and they have no problem meeting them. I mean, if I remember correctly, Ashmore had blocking positions for multiple Lebanese bonds. Yes, no, exactly. And I mean, and, and Ashmore is a little different than your Black Rocks, but Ashmore also is a emerging market specialist that has become enormous and they have very large positions in a number of the countries that we've seen restructuring this year. Um, But yes, you're right that a lot of these large players that manage enormous um, amount of assets, 
they know, you know, they know what the deal is. They know exactly how much they have to have. And some of these larger funds, as I said, just by definition, are almost always going to end up having a blocking position. And on the one hand, this will mean that if you can get a number of these bigger players to agree to a restructuring, they are probably going to be able to push something through. You're not going to just have to deal with a ton of teeny tiny little guys if you can get some of these larger players to play ball. But the other side of that coin is that that gives them an enormous amount of power. And that is definitely something that we, we did see. I, I think the fact that you, know, if you talk to people who really understand the bond market in March and you said, okay, what do you think average, you know, if we, we go through all the bonds and we do kind of average market clearing price once everything is said and done, they would have told you between 54 and 55 cents, which is exactly in Argentina where it ended up. So basically, the, these large funds knew this was, this was what they wanted and that was what they were going to get. And that was exactly what ended up happening. And I think moving forward, you are probably going to see this playing out over and over again, that either you're going to have countries that are going to understand this and understand that they're going to have to play ball and like Ecuador did, or you're going to have countries that are going to potentially engage in a lot of drama to mostly for political reasons, but at the end of the day, they're going to have to agree to whatever these funds want to do. So to, to, um, to hone in on what has changed, we always had big funds, mm -hmm. like PIMCO always had huge holdings and people always cared about, well, you know, what does PIMCO think about collective action clauses or fidelity has been around forever. I'm wondering, uh, what has changed that they've decided to come in and play a big role? Is it that they saw the giant returns that Elliot and Aurelius made in Argentina and decided, you know, we don't want to look like chumps? Or is it that the official sector in the form of the IMF or the U.S. Treasury is not calling them up and saying, look, you've got to give uh, Argentina or Ecuador a better deal. This, this deal that you have is really crappy and they're going to be back asking for another restructuring. I mean, as you correctly pointed out, the Argentine versus investor differential at the beginning seemed to be about 15 cents between 40 and, or 20 cents between 40 and 60 cents on the dollar. Uh, and then in the end, we ended up at 55, which is pretty much what the investors want. So that seems to illustrate the point that you're making, that they just got whatever they wanted because otherwise they weren't going to do the deal. And I, I, I'm again trying to pinpoint, what is it? it? It can't just be that the clauses were changed in a way in which advantages the uh, investors. Something else perhaps has happened or I, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering about what caused the change in the market that we are seeing what we're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is that while yes, you are certainly seeing these larger funds throw their weight around, they're not behaving like an Elliot, Aurelius. I mean, they're not asking for ridiculous recoveries. They're asking for recoveries that can, to a certain extent, makes sense in the context that exists. It's not necessarily what the government wants, but it's not, you know, it's not an absurd end goal that they're looking for. So that's number one. I would say that they are, they are different in that sense. In terms of 
what has changed. I, I mean, I, I will go back to a certain extent. Is yes, while you've, you've had large players in the past, the amount of money, the concentration, though, has grown significantly since the past. And the incentives, they, I guess I would also say maybe for a lot of these funds have changed, and they're not necessarily looking for Elliott-like returns. If, if, in order to get Elliott-like returns, you're going to have to buy those bonds at an incredibly cheap price. You know, that, that is not necessarily what a lot of these funds are doing. However, they aren't often are not going to be buying these bonds, as I said, at, at incredibly cheap prices. They may have been buying them when they were issued. So they have far more incentive to try to get the best possible deal they can. Now, everyone's always trying to get the best possible deal, but for them, they, you know, they're not going to have the capacity or they don't want to, if they, if they had bought, sorry, let me restate that. Obviously, if your cost, as I say, if your cost basis is lower, that to a certain extent gives you a bit more flexibility to allow more relief. However, if you're buying at a higher price, don't have that same flexibility. And do you think, so one of the things that um, I sometimes wonder about is if we see a broader wave of defaults, as seems not implausible given sort of present circumstances. So I'm wondering whether this is a might ultimately prove to be a good development, bad, neutral. I mean, as I sort of see the gloomy state of the world that we might enter, we have sort of global economic distress, maybe a kind of temporarily disaffected or disinterested treasury. I, I don't know. It seems to have lost interest in some settings. A strain on official resources that kind of dwarfs what we would normally see, plus this change in the composition of the, the uh, important creditors. Is that a gloomy picture? Is, that, um, is it good to have these somewhat more real money investors um, in the driver's seat? What's your take on that? So let me add to Mark's uh, question. I I would say I, I'm going to push you to, on the gloomy side, but may, correct me if I'm wrong. What we witnessed in the attempt to get relief from the private creditors for the poorest 70 nations of the mm -hmm. world, where they gave a sum total, best I can tell, of zero dollars. That's right. With, the most pathetic excuses, uh, like fiduciary duties. I'm like, come on, like first year law student knows that fiduciary duties really are not gonna stop you from giving this kind of relief. Uh, but it, it didn't, the signs I think are not good. So Anna, please tell us that the, the big players are gonna, are, are gonna contribute and uh, back up all of their uh, fancy talk in their investor newsletters. Well, one thing I would say is I, honestly don't know if we're going to see quite the wave of defaults and restructurings that we may have thought we were in March and April. While I could be 100% wrong about this, a, a number of credit specialists I've spoken to have increasingly said, well, yes, you, you certainly would see some, especially countries that came into this with weaknesses and instabilities. We've already seen a dramatic amount of inflows back into EM. And because it looks fairly clear that in the developed markets, we're essentially never going to have real interest rates again, that you're going to have a lot of appetite for yield. You're going to have a lot of reaching for yield. So you're going to continue to have people finance countries that when you take a step back and look at the fundamentals, you may think it makes no sense. However, I do think countries are probably going to have an easier time rolling over debt 
than we may have thought a few months ago. That would be, I guess, be the first thing to say. Now, having said that, we are definitely going to have some countries that are going to go into default, that are going to have to restructure. And I, I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of what you're going to get with this somewhat new investment class. And again, you have some of the same players you've had in the past, but obviously some of these changes um, with some of these players that have a lot more heft. Now, one of the issues you have, and you will always have, are these intercreditor disputes. And I say this because I think part of the reason you didn't have a lot of private creditors wanting to go along with the debt standstills and any type of debt relief is because of the belief that if everyone doesn't have to do it, then why on earth am I going to do it if all that's doing is enabling that country to pay out my competition or potentially to pay out China or to pay out some other entity that is not going to be giving relief? So like, why am I going to be the sucker that gives relief if someone else isn't? And I think that, you know, that was, an, I think, something we saw there. And I think in restructurings moving forward, this is, always, this is going to continue to be an issue is that even though you may have a small number of large players you have to deal with, those players are going to have very different interests. And it's not necessarily going to be easy to get them aligned. This was, again, something we saw in Argentina, not to always talk about Argentina, but this last time around, I think it was one of the biggest frustrations of the government is that in, in, even within a single creditor group, you had such varying interests that sometimes seemed to change day by day that they had a very hard time, to a certain extent, negotiating, figuring out what this group wanted because itself it wanted very different things. And the people who wanted very different things were powerful entities. And I think that is something that we are going to continue to see. That doesn't mean we won't be able to restructure debt. I think we will, I think to a certain extent, because you're gonna have fewer large players involved that to a certain extent simplifies things. However, I do think it probably means you are going to see better recoveries for bondholders and that is not long-term probably the best thing for the countries. So I'm going to ask a, a small board question. Now, given that uh, we've talked about the investor class and how it has changed and the big picture about all the defaults that, that are coming, and, and the small board question is about Ecuador. And as you and Mark know, I, I love exit consents and uh, have been uh, sad that they haven't been used all that much. But something strange to me, at least, happened in Ecuador recently that doesn't seem to have gotten much attention. And I, I'm curious about this. Actually, I'd love to hear from both of you before we go to the break. And, and that is that Ecuador, perhaps because of its bad behavior before and its aggressive use of exit consents, had a clause in its bonds that was quite unusual. I think it's sort of a Uruguay style clause, but it was a clause that basically barred the use of exit consents just for them. And after this current restructuring, I can't find that clause anymore. And I haven't read anything about its disappearance, but and, and maybe it's just I haven't looked carefully enough, but I think it's gone. I, I think investors are saying, we, we, either they're saying we're not afraid of exit consents anymore, or they're saying we think Ecuador is now a good actor. And it, I find it very implausible to think it's the latter. Uh, 
but then I, I'm still surprised about the former. So I, I, maybe this is maybe this connects to the story about big investors. Maybe it doesn't. But um, I'm hoping you guys will find a way to connect it. I'm I'm also just really curious about the the investor uh, litigation against Ecuador, which seemed lunatic to me. <laughs> yes. they, had, they had a claim. I mean, they had a claim. There was a contract clause that they found that seemed to be violated, or at least they had a good argument it was violated. But then they were, they like wrapped it up in the securities fraud claim that didn't seem right from the start that it had any chance of going anywhere. I, I'm so befuddled by all of that. Uh, but nobody else seemed to pay that much attention to it. So maybe maybe it didn't happen. Maybe it's just my dream. I think it definitely happened. It, it, it certainly was interesting. It, it, you know, Ecuador was going along so smoothly and then you have this, this drama at the end. But I think it does relate to what we've been talking about in terms of the growth of these very, very large, powerful players that are really driving these restructurings is that it, it's increasingly going to be harder for those teeny tiny holdouts to get the type of, to make the type of returns, to get the type of deals they got in the past, partly because of the power of some of these larger players, also frankly, partly because of the collective action clauses. So what we saw with Contrarian and was in Ecuador was essentially a Hail Mary. They really didn't have much of a chance here. It was very clear that no judge in the world was going to agree to them, but they frankly didn't have a lot of other options. So they did this at the end of the day. It, it obviously didn't work. However, what else were they going to do? I think that's maybe not the greatest explanation, but I think that that, frankly, is basically what happened. I would also say, I think then, then I'll let someone else speak, is that I think part of the reason you may have some of these larger funds allow the countries a little bit of flexibility to stop, to eliminate the possibility of holdouts is because they're almost never going to be a holdout creditor. They, in order for any deal to go through, they're going to have to be involved. So they're not gonna probably end up in the position of like a contrarian. So once they have worked months and months to negotiate a deal, the last thing they want is for a bunch of dinky little funds to be able to screw up their beautiful deal they've created. So I think that this does perhaps change incentives a little bit. Now, they certainly don't want countries to be allowed to do what, say, Argentina was trying to do. I'll keep talking about Argentina, where they were basically trying to use collective action clauses to pressure the majority to do something. They're not going to allow that. However, it is going to be in their interest to see deals through once they have an instruction and once they have come along. So before we take a break, let me just, let me just add two cents quickly. The Ecuador lawsuit was was funny. I, I, I don't know much of the backstory, but it read to me, it was just a very half-hearted pleading. It read to me like the kind of thing a lawyer does to make their client stop screaming at them rather than rather than anything that anybody had any hope of success, which I, I found it amusing just for that for that reason alone. On Ecuador, so, so it's interesting to me, if it, the, the trend over the last basically 20 years, right, Me Too and Anna, has been that we're going to make CACs more robust because they're going to make the world perfect. But then because we're giving you these beautiful, effective CACs, we want to reduce your ability to use 
exit consents. And so the, the list of reserve matters that, that you have to trigger this higher CAC voting threshold for, that has gotten bigger and bigger to encompass a lot of the changes that would formerly have been made by exit consent. So the trade-off was like, we're not going to completely take away the exit consent unless maybe you're Ecuador, but we're going we're gonna to make it harder for you to use because you've got these beautiful new, new collective voting mechanisms. And now everyone is maybe kind of realized um, or at least acknowledged what they already knew, which is that these collective voting mechanisms are kind of bullshit anyway. They're broken uh, and don't work particularly well. So I think Anna's last point is maybe the most important one, that if you've got players in the market who are going to dictate restructuring terms, it's in their interest that there be some kind of effective tool for sweeping up holdouts. Right. And, and maybe that explains it. Me too. I don't, the, I don't know. In any maybe. event, we, we, um, a while ago, uh, Anna mentioned something that is a, a good transition point, which is, um, she referenced countries that maybe went into the, the pandemic in, uh, difficult straits. And so let's take a couple of minutes and maybe we can, um, conjure up one of those countries to talk about when we come back. So we're back with Anna, and I want to ask a short question about Lebanon that relates to the discussion we were having before the break. And the short question is, is Lebanon utterly screwed? Because as I read their contracts, they can't use exit consents at all or at least that seems to be the most plausible reading of the contract. And yet they've got Ashmore and maybe who knows who else that seems to have blocking positions in a number of different series. Can they restructure or are they completely screwed? Well, they're definitely completely screwed. Although I feel like the lack of um, exit consents is probably the least. <laughs> <of the problem. laughs> yeah. I mean, so number one, I would say that, when you're talking about Lebanon, it sounds like a joke, but it's very true, is that in order to have a debt restructuring, you have to have a counterparty. And currently, Lebanon really does not have a functional government. I mean, you can argue about whether they've ever had a functional government, but you, you need to have leadership that not only can negotiate, will negotiate with creditors, will negotiate with the IMF, but then also has the capacity to actually come up with a deal and push that deal through. And the previous government, while they may have been talking and while they did actually put forward a restructuring deal, clearly internally did not have the capacity to even get that through their own banking lobby. And then now we really do, we basically have a caretaker government. So we're not gonna know anything until we get some type of real government in. And honestly, I don't know if and when that will ever happen. That's the first thing. Now, when it comes to a universe where we pretend that they do actually have a government in place. I do think you're right that unfortunately the contracts they have are some of the worst contracts. When you look at them, it's almost remarkable how poorly done these are in terms of the protections that the government has. And I almost wonder if it's part of a whole theme where this, this government in so many different ways just is incompetent. And I think this is one more example of their complete incompetence um, in terms of the government, the previous government that created these contracts. Because normally in, as obviously you two know far better than I do, 
in these contracts, you have different thresholds in order to change less important details of contracts. You can have a lower voting threshold, important payment details, reserve matter. You have a higher threshold. In Lebanon, the way that it appears these contracts are structured, you basically seem to have one higher threshold to change anything. And, and if that is the case, you obviously can't use exit consents because you don't have a lower threshold. And, and, and just on top of that, there's so much ambiguity in these, in these contracts that just, to me, means it's going to be very hard for a government like Lebanon to be able to get anything done when you're going to have these large actors who are going to quite reasonably be able to point to the language in the contract and say that's not allowed. Do you, do you have a sense, have you talked to investors and gotten a sense of how they view these contracts? Like, were they delighted like it was a gift that they somebody had left on their front stoop when they realized that because when i read the contracts it's it's hard to attribute it to sort of rational design like they just they make no sense Mm -hmm. so you know that the you could tell a story about how they were written to prevent lebanon from using exit consent and yet they're they're not written in a way that does that clearly they just kind of seem to do it by accident do you get the sense investors sort of discovered this and were excited about it or were they viewing this as some product of design something designed to keep lebanon you know on the straight and narrow i can't say what any individual investors may may think i will say this again goes to the idea of who this investor who the creditor is whether they're real money, whether they're an alternative investment fund, how they might view this. Because if you're a fund, if you're a either, you know, if you're some type of alternative investment fund, whether it's kind of distressed hedge fund, you probably are more excited when you find something like this. Because it's someone in your DNA to be more apt to want to litigate. You probably bought your bonds for cheaper. This is the kind of thing that will probably be a gift to you. Now, if you're more of an institutional player, who may have you know, potentially bought your, your bonds at par, or frankly, you're just, the way that you function is not by making large returns through litigation, then frankly, you may not be thrilled to find out that you have incredibly ambiguous contracts that could end up just creating an enormous amount of expensive, protracted chaos. So I think when it comes to how creditors will view these things, it again goes back to what type of creditor are we talking about? So Anna, th- this, um... I've heard you mention, maybe on Slate Money, the words a Ponzi scheme <laughs> a, a, a few times. Is this the, the description of the contracts that you and Mark gave? Is this just part of the utter lack of concern that Lebanon has had for years in its debt issuances? I, I mean, I remember when Mark and I were uh, doing data collection some years ago and uh, remarking to him, it's so interesting that you know, Lebanon keeps issuing bonds because we kept having to code these new Lebanon bonds that kept, kept coming. And I thought, I thought they are kind of not a very functional economy. And he said, oh, who knows? Maybe they have you know, some secret stash of gold or something like that. But uh, now it seems like from your description that they're going to become like Cuba or Venezuela. Like there's just no chance of ever paying. I guess, I guess Venezuela, once Maduro goes, might actually pay something given that they have oil. But Venezuela, do they have anything? Well, well, Lebanon actually does have some gold. <laughs> One of the few things they actually sell is gold jewelry. 
But yeah, you, you are right that Lebanon, unlike even a Venezuela, Lebanon doesn't really have a fully functioning economy outside of their banking system. You know, essentially what you had for a significant period of time in Lebanon was the government and the bank and the, those who ran the private banking system, you know, having this very wealthy elite who created this financial system that only worked as long as you continued to have dollars flowing in, hard currency flowing in from the wealthy diaspora and also in from Gulf countries. And as soon as that dried up, the entire system basically collapsed. And unfortunately, the way that system was structured, it also made it almost impossible to have any type of underlying economy because it meant you had a very overvalued currency and very high interest rates. Now, the other thing though I will say, kind of going back to what you actually asked me, is that a lot of these bonds are held internally. So this is part of the whole Ponzi scheme, is that you basically have a lot of the private banking system holding so much of the government debt. And then a lot of the bank's assets are held at the central bank, which then uses them to prop up the currency. And you can see why this creates a problem. But I can also imagine that that's part of the reason why, outside of sheer incompetence, they may have been less concerned about protections in terms of what the country could and could not do if so much of this debt is simply being held by different actors that even if it's a private bank, it's still essentially very closely connected to the government. It's still so interesting because the contracts are like defiantly non-standard. I mean, that's the yes. thing that I remember noticing most about them. And you would think that if you just really didn't give a damn you would just pick something off the shelf and use it. And then you would wind up with, you know, more or less what everybody else uses. And yet, you know, they, they continued using these outdated CACs to, for years and years and years. I, I just find it, sorry, this isn't a question. I just find it utterly inexplicable that so much care seems to have been lavished on making something so incomprehensible. Yeah, I mean... To a certain extent, I think you also had something that was very poorly structured to begin with, and then you didn't have people take the time to actually fix what was clearly wrong in the original structure, which I think is indicative of the way that this government in this country has run a lot of things. So I, I think that is probably you know, part of that. I, I, it, is, it is possible that some of what we're seeing, and again, I think you guys would probably know this more than I do in terms of how specific part of the way that it, the contracts were structured could be related to different interests, different very local interests you have in Lebanon, and that created this kind of bizarre structure that we have. But honestly, I, I it seems easier for me to believe that if we're looking about, did someone actually plan to do it this way, or did they just kind of mess up and then not change things? I honestly probably would assume it's the latter. All right, Anna, I, I'm going to um, uh, uh, allow you to escape uh, Lebanon, which just seems to be beyond uh, depressing in the current uh, state of the world, and, and ask you about your optimism that the markets are actually going to continue funding emerging markets. So it seemed quite bizarre after the sudden stop in March uh, that the markets came back to life in such a manner where they were funding countries like, I think Belarus was able to issue bonds. It, uh -huh. it now just seems uh, staggeringly uh, bizarre. Uh, Egypt, uh, Brazil, all at really attract, Albania maybe, uh, attractive rates. But over the past month, 
uh, as Mark and I have been talking about, there haven't been that many issuances. And uh, uh, looking at the trade papers, seems like Dubai is going to issue, but not that many uh, sort of countries in the crapper are coming to tap the market. So, and given that they all need money, that's a um, that seems a worrying thing. But the second is, if I look at the CDS prices for countries like South Africa and Turkey, they seem pretty bad. Like, and those are big countries that if with a lot of debt. I mean, big. I mean, giant amounts of debt. And if 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 they go down. They have the potential to take much of the system with us. So I want to drag you from your position of mild or minimal optimism <laughs> back to the dark side with us. Yes. And I agree with you that I think you you certainly have some of those countries that, again, I think went in with significant weaknesses like Turkey. I mean, Turkey is probably the closest country you can get to a Lebanon-like situation. They're obviously not as bad as Lebanon, but they have some serious vulnerabilities that they've had for a very long time. So yes, I think it's certainly possible that you could have some, because of, partly because of COVID and some of the things that COVID has caused, you could potentially have some restructurings that you, it may have, if we hadn't had COVID, it may have taken another five years before some of these things collapsed. However, I don't necessarily know if I think that this is somehow gonna like bring down the system. I think you have to look at, you know, what is the mechanism that makes that happen? I mean, this is, we just, we don't have, EM does not work in the same way it worked in the past in terms of, you know, when, when one country experienced severe distress, that meant that every country was going to have a hard time financing. We, we really haven't seen that happen. When you talk with investors every single time, they will tell you, this is a unique situation. This is a bespoke situation. And even if you push them and you say, are you sure? Because I see these vulnerabilities in all these other countries. They'll be like, no, 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 no. And so even if we do have a few large restructurings, number one, the question is, okay, well, how, how bad are those restructurings going to be in terms of like, okay, what are the recovery values that the bondholders are going to get? Do I, I, I just still, I don't see any mechanism where this is going to somehow cause just kind of disaster to spread throughout EM. So maybe one last question, if you'll indulge me before we we let you go. So one of the things the doom and gloom people, which which sometimes includes me too and me, <laughs> uh, have been worried about is, you know, what happens if we have relatively widespread serious debt distress and the need to kind of corral aggressive creditors, prevent them from kind of mucking up the works by demanding full payment um, or, or even you know, a smaller subset of creditors from filing lawsuits. And so there've been all kinds of ideas designed to sort of replicate a stay. You know, to, during COVID, we want a, a sort of temporary halt to payments as a kind of a first step in laying the groundwork for a wider series of, of restructurings if they're necessary. Um, so we've talked about the doctrine of necessity, how maybe that would be a fallback and things like that. But the, but the overarching goal is to have a like a breathing space where countries could defer some debt payments if they needed to. Is that unnecessary now that we have a, a different set of players in the market? Like if there's a need for 
like a widely perceived need for a, a little bit of a holiday, a couple of years to deal with the pandemic. Or do you think we're going to see private sector participation then? I mean, I think, it, again, it, it's going to depend on which countries we're talking about. If we're talking about the countries that do have a significant amount of Eurobonds out there, then, yeah, I, I honestly do think that a lot of the issuers will probably be willing to be somewhat flexible. When you talk with creditors, and this was the same thing, again, going back to Argentina and Ecuador, even before COVID, no one thought that you that there wasn't a liquidity issue and that you didn't have to offer a number of years where there were going to be very low payments. That, that cash flow relief is something that creditors are fine offering. What they don't want to offer are principal haircuts. You know, they're willing to take MPV haircuts, but they are not willing to take principal haircuts for, for fairly obvious reasons. And I think that when you're talking about it on an individual basis, they will do that. Now, if you try to say you're going to have outside forces who are going to try to force creditors, private creditors, to on a wide basis say, okay, all of these different countries, that's where I think they, they will again push back on. The other thing though, I, I know we really haven't talked about and it is a little bit different, but if we're talking about a lot of not even necessarily emerging economies, but developing economies, China is obviously an enormous player here. And this is another enormous player that actually has a tremendous amount of incentive to be flexible and almost certainly will be. There's very, China, if you're looking at a lot of these individual countries, the impact they have on China's like quote unquote balance sheet is pretty small. The geopolitical impact of having all of these countries very, very dependent on China is huge. So they are almost certainly going to be more flexible. Well, I hope that in the event we won't have to figure out whether uh, whether our doom and gloom is warranted or not. But thank you, uh, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us. It's been a real treat to have you, um, and we hope to to maybe continue this conversation over beers in person at some unspecified point in the future when we're not all locked in our apartments. Yes, and we will then talk about how Anna was right in her optimism and that we were wrong. I very much want that to be the case. He's lying. He does not want that to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very infrequently I'm very an optimist. So. Well, thank you. Well, and, and thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot. Thank you. This is great.